Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic consequences of today's disaster, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. At 3 p.m. on August 20th, 1910, Forest Ranger Ed Pulaski and a ragtag team of young volunteers were clearing brush on a ridge above the town of Wallace, Idaho. It was a hot day, but the sun was obscured by smoke. Pulaski and his squad were on the front lines of an effort to combat thousands of small wildfires blazing along the northern reaches of the Rocky Mountains. For weeks, he and his comrades in the newly formed U.S. Forest Service had relentlessly cleared swaths of forest to halt the fires. They were overworked and understaffed, but many members of the service still believed the situation was under control. But Pulaski worried the worst was yet to come. When smoke from the fires blocked out the sun around 3 p.m., he knew he was right. Then the wind picked up and Pulaski's heart rate skyrocketed. A low rumble came rising up from the forest on the other side of the ridge. The distinct blazes had combined into a singular, massive wildfire, turning the tides against the firefighters. Pulaski called out to his men and they frantically raced down the ridge away from the flames. They needed shelter immediately. Now, all they could do was try to outrun the raging inferno, but the fire was moving faster than any man could run. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
This is our first of two episodes on the Big Burn of 1910, an enormous wildfire that decimated millions of acres along the northern Rocky Mountains in a matter of hours. This week, we'll touch upon the natural and human factors that provided the kindling for the wildfires during the 1910 fire season. We'll also meet the Forest Service Rangers and U.S. Army soldiers who were the only line of defense against wildfires in the West. Next week, in part two, we'll hear about the terrible destruction the blaze brought to Idaho and Montana and examine the aftermath in the mountains. We'll further explore firefighting and safety in the modern era and the enduring legacy of the Big Burn. Archaeologists believe that our predecessors first harnessed fire around a million years ago. This breakthrough brought about developments in shelter, agriculture, and defense from natural predators. Fire was the foundation of human technology and civilization. Yet, even with centuries of practice, the power of fire was never completely under humanity's control. In the modern era, infamous blazes singed the skylines of San Francisco, Chicago, and New York City. But these fires stemmed from human error. None of them matched the destruction of the largest natural blaze in U.S. history. The catastrophic wildfire of 1910 incinerated over 4,000 square miles of the western United States and came to be known as the Big Burn. The Big Burn was the result of human agricultural inexperience, a freak climate, and unbridled westward expansion by American corporations and homesteaders. In the late 1800s, the untamed West was considered to be the final frontier of the burgeoning United States. The end of the Civil War left the country reeling from debt, and the West offered solutions in the form of land and resources. The Western territories had vast, untapped supplies of timber and minerals. To spur interest in the isolated region, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act in 1862, promising new settlers 160 acres of land in exchange for a small fee and a contract to work the land for at least five years. Over the next four decades, the government designated 80 million acres through the Homestead Act. The West held everything promised by the American dream, resources, land, and freedom. But there were also risks and dangers yet to be discovered. The stretch of the Rocky Mountains across the states of Idaho, Montana, and Washington was rich in lumber, iron, copper, and nickel. This undeveloped land was of major interest to mining companies. In 1883, the Northern Pacific Railroad laid tracks from St. Paul, Minnesota to Tacoma, Washington, opening the doors to even more westward expansion. The population of the Northern Rockies ballooned from nearly 300,000 to more than 2 million. And as people poured into the region, they harvested lumber in massive quantities. People cleared forests without much concern. The wood was harvested and the empty land was used for farming. Throughout tens of millions of acres of land, virtually every tree was cut down for agricultural use. To clear land, most harvesters use the slash and burn technique, which involves cutting down trees and foliage and scorching the land to clear the remaining stumps and undergrowth. This charred open space then becomes farmland. 
Though a centuries-old practice, reckless use of slash and burn had proven disastrous for the town of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, only a decade previously. In 1871, Peshtigo farmers lit so many slash-and-burn fires, the smoke completely obscured visibility over Lake Michigan. Afraid that ships might come too close to shore, the dockmasters sounded their foghorns in the middle of the day. On October 8, 1871, strong winds brought many of the small fires together into a single massive wildfire. Around 10 p.m., a low rumble approached the south of Peshtigo. Minutes later, the town was struck by an inferno moving on the wind at nearly 100 miles per hour. The air temperature is thought to have rocketed to over 500 degrees Fahrenheit. One resident, G.J. Tisdale, raced for the safety of a nearby river as the fire overtook the town. The winds knocked Tisdale over and threw him several feet. Those who never made it to the river were reported to have spontaneously combusted from the sheer force of the heat. From their refuge in the water, bystanders watched a tornado of fire whirl around them, continuously dunking their heads to prevent their hair from going aflame. Pieces of wood caught fire while floating in the water. Thousands of people perished in the Peshtigo fire. One heartbreaking account describes a father who, after just watching his wife perish, took drastic measures to protect his children. Instead of waiting for the heat to sear their lungs in a painful death, he slit their throats. By the next day, survivors found their once beautiful town now resembled a desert. Unidentifiable charred bodies littered the streets. Entire families had been engulfed in the midst of their escape. Three months after the fire, one relief worker said, great numbers of people were burned, whose names have never been ascertained, probably never will be. After the fire in Peshtigo, the federal government began to worry about the impact of unchecked land use. Resources like wood grew more scarce by the day, to the point that some feared a possible timber famine. In the 1870s and 80s, national parks were formed to protect areas of natural beauty and resources, but the country still needed an agency to monitor these new national reserves. So, in 1905, President Teddy Roosevelt created the U.S. Forest Service, headed by Gifford Pinchot. From 1905 to 1910, Pinchot's efforts tripled the area of protected national forest reserves in the U.S. A staunch advocate for the environment and conservation, Pinchot saw his forest management role as his God-given duty. He and his rangers called their work the Great Crusade. In 1907, 160 young forest rangers made their way out to the northern stretch of the Rockies. They were led by Pinchot's friend, forester Bill Greeley, who supervised over 40 million acres in Idaho, Montana, and South Dakota. These new rangers mapped the region and cultivated trails. They monitored the grazing and breeding of farm animals and kept watch for illegal hunters, squatters, and arsonists. Wildfires also occurred frequently, which required firefighting teams and watchtowers. Unfortunately, even if all 160 rangers were spread evenly across the region, each one would be responsible for over 185,000 acres, 
it was impossible to monitor and fight all the fires in the territory. In the 1900s, wilderness firefighting was still in its infancy. Before planes and radio, the process of simply finding a wildfire could take days. Even when a fire was spotted in the distance, marshalling men and material to fight it was another ordeal altogether. The primary method of stopping a fire was to make a fire line. Rangers formed this line by physically removing any flammable substances from the fire's path, which meant clearing large swaths of forest. Another option was backfiring. In this process, a firefighter lights a fire in the path of an already burning wildfire. The backfire then burns towards the incoming blaze. As it does, it uses up the fuel the wildfire would otherwise consume to travel forward. Armed with this training, the Forest Service dispatched more rangers west. Unfortunately, most of these young men remained unaware of the natural, human, and political factors that would threaten their work and lives. But not all rangers were young, blissful ideologues. Forest ranger Ed Pulaski lived in the small mining town of Wallace, Idaho. When 44-year-old Ed joined the newly founded Forest Service in 1908, he was much older than his fellow rangers. But Pulaski had lived in the Rockies since he was 16, and the Forest Service's commitment to the region strongly resonated with him. Pulaski had good reason to share the service's concerns about America's forests. To many, the Wild West felt like an everlasting pool of resources with few rules to follow. But this hubris would soon lead to one of the greatest disasters in the region's history. We'll explore how a searing drought thrust the region to the edge of catastrophe right after this. Now back to the story. By midsummer of 1910, hundreds of fires blazed from central Idaho all the way to northeast Washington. It fell to the fledgling Forest Service to find the fires, put them out, and prevent future blazes. Wildfires happened often in the northern Rockies. Natural elements like lightning were responsible for some, but human folly played a very destructive role. The majority of unchecked fires were started intentionally by using slash-and-burn techniques to clear land. The fires succeeded in clearing trees, but then smoldered and caught the surrounding forest as well. The settlers and loggers disliked the regulations set by the Forest Service and kept setting fires with reckless abandon. For them, the risk was worth the profits. Meanwhile, the smokestacks of trains carrying lumber spewed cinders across their roots, igniting the dry underbrush along the tracks. The Department of Agriculture cites railways like the Chicago, Milwaukee, and Puget Sound Railway as the culprits behind at least a hundred separate fires. To make matters worse, there were fewer than 200 forest rangers monitoring the tens of millions of acres of national forest between Montana and Washington and it was simply impossible for them to find and contain so many blazes. However, naturally occurring wildfires play an integral role in ecosystems, a scientific process that was still unfamiliar to the Forest Service in the early 20th century. After years of fallen tree debris and other dead foliage builds up, a wildfire burns it away and clears space for new flora and fauna to spring to life. The indigenous tribes who originally occupied the West understood the usefulness of a forest fire. 
Sometimes they would even encourage flames by adding kindling to natural fires. It's estimated that before the westward expansion of American settlers, millions of acres naturally went up in flames annually. Unaware of the need for natural wildfires, the Forest Service put out as many as they could. They believed they'd not only save themselves, but the land as well. Instead, they were leaving a surplus of dry spruce and pine trees, which would become fuel for the largest wildfire they would ever see. In 1910, the dangerous conditions became critical. Idaho entered a severe drought in the spring of that year, seeing only half of its usual levels of precipitation. To make matters worse, the wildfire season, which typically started in June, came early with the first reported blaze on April 29th. By May, the precipitation dried up completely. The next three months without rain left the region in one of its driest spells on record. By midsummer, hundreds of thousands of flammable trees stood drying out in the unrelenting sun. These stands of pine were still considered too valuable to burn, but the withered timber was the perfect fuel for a wildfire, which could transform the tall pines into massive flying projectiles. The forest rangers continued their grueling work of clearing brush and containing wildfires throughout July. They knew their work would be arduous, but the Forest Service didn't anticipate the number of human obstacles they'd face in the crime-ridden region. In 1910, the little mining town of Taft, Montana, reported a higher murder rate than the city of Chicago. For rangers, patrolling federal land became a matter of life and death. Squatters and arsonists saw the land as free for the taking and weren't afraid to use violence. The rangers were armed, but so were many of the aggressors. One forest ranger in Idaho said, in the towns of Little North Fork, Marble Creek, and Big Creek, we were extremely unpopular and had to use discretion and diplomacy. We never knew when a bullet might meet us on the trail. Any attempt to recruit the locals into helping the forest rangers failed. As the region was pockmarked by hundreds of small blazes, the inhabitants of the area seemed not to care. On July 21st, the Forest Service issued a frustrated statement to the Idaho Press newspaper. It said, While there are plenty of idle men in Wallace or vicinity, they refuse to accept work of any kind. With fewer than 200 rangers patrolling 30 million acres, the federal agency was desperate for help. They opened their doors to anyone who would enlist. A wave of immigrants joined up for a mere 75 cents an hour, bringing the Forest Service's regional headcount up to 4,000 workers by the end of July. It was hard, unpopular work, but it was about to get much worse. In late summer of 1910, 31-year-old ranger Bill Greeley was struggling to monitor his vast expanse of acreage. He was especially concerned with the complete lack of humidity, reporting that the forest air was on par with the Mojave Desert. Like everyone else living in the region, Greeley hoped the climate would shift and offer some relief. He would be sorely disappointed. When a storm finally arrived on the night of July 26th, it brought none of the desperately needed rain. The thunderclouds only brought lightning, which sparked new fires. The storm roused Ranger Ed Pulaski from his bed in Wallace, Idaho. 
As he watched the storm bear down on the town from over the mountains, he knew it would leave more fires in its wake. But as he watched the sunrise on the morning of July 27th, Pulaski had no way of knowing that over a thousand fires were already burning throughout the region. If these individual blazes came together, the resulting inferno would be unstoppable. On top of the new danger, even some of the once dedicated forest rangers were growing tired of their ceaseless work. It was difficult keeping men on the job, where rest was scarce and safety not guaranteed. Clearing land and covering it with dirt required endurance and strength, both of which were tested against the heat from the fires and the relentless sunlight. As they fought the fires, workers lost shoes and clothes with nothing to replace them. Some workers quit in the middle of the job, right there on the hillsides. One ranger, Harry S. Kaufman, managed to stay strong, offering his tenacity to others along the way. He wrote in his journal, My luck still prevails, as I was able to get back two men that had quit and also picked up five more. But in the coming days, no amount of manpower could prevent the destruction. Going into August, the situation in Idaho and Montana teetered on the edge of chaos. President Taft, who had ignored the concerns of the Forest Service for years, finally began to understand the severity of the wildfires in the region. Lumber companies calculated the amount of timber that could be lost to wildfires if left unchecked and forced the president into taking action. If Taft failed to respond, the loss of life or property would be blamed on him. On August 7th, nearly 4,000 U.S. Army troops ascended into the Rockies on the president's direct order. Ten days later, the famous 25th Infantry Regiment, better known as the Buffalo Soldiers, arrived to aid the Forest Service. In addition to the hard march up the mountain and the exhausting work in the forest, the all-black regiment faced tough circumstances in the town of Avery, Idaho. The mostly white population treated them with suspicion and often outright racism. But the 25th Infantry was undeterred. The regiment would be a pivotal defense for Avery and its residents as the wildfires came closer and closer. But even the U.S. Army couldn't stand up to nature's fury. The fires had festered on their own for too long, covering far too much space to be contained by a fire line. As rangers and soldiers battled the onslaught of individual fires all across the northern Rockies, everyone else went about their daily lives. Miners, trappers, loggers, and the like continued with business as usual, unaware of the danger brewing all around them. But the signs of danger grew harder and harder to ignore as the dry, hot days of August ticked by. Fires were now smoldering near the towns of Taft and Wallace. Pulaski's wife, Emma, described the routine but terrible scenes near their home in Wallace. She said, During August 1910, the smoke was so dense around Wallace that the sun was like a big red ball and the atmosphere a dull yellow haze. The streets and houses were covered with ashes and burning twigs blown from the burning mountains. People were hoarse and their eyes were red from smoke. But while the town was merely beginning to choke on ash and smoke, Ranger Ed Pulaski was facing a catastrophe in the Coeur d'Alene Forest. 
His team had occupied a ridge between Avery and Wallace as a defensive position, but the nearest wildfire was about to jump their fire line. On August 19th, he implored his wife and daughter to flee the town. They refused to leave, so Pulaski told them to run to a nearby reservoir if the fire approached the town. Within hours, a strong blast of wind came rushing into the region, carrying with it all of Pulaski's worst fears. The gusts were driving the smaller fires into each other. The entire region would soon be consumed by a single massive inferno. When we come back, the furious winds drive thousands of fires together into a record-setting blaze. Now, back to the story. On August 19, 1910, forest ranger Ed Pulaski lay on the front lines of a growing wall of fires cascading over the northern Rocky Mountains. Under his command, 150 men were spread out, fighting the oncoming blazes. As the wind picked up that morning, the fires burned hotter and wider. By late morning on the 19th, smoke filled the air, limiting visibility to only 20 feet. Foliage crumbled and crackled in every direction. Smoke partially obscured the sun. The individual fires on the mountainsides were now impossible to distinguish. The entire mountain range seemed to be one single writhing wall of flame. The cleared swath of forest along the fire line kept the roaring wildfire from rushing down the mountain at full speed, but it was only a matter of time before the flames jumped the fire line and headed for the town. Pulaski's regiment knew they alone were keeping the fires away from Wallace, Idaho. Despite the rangers' ongoing efforts, the town's inhabitants sensed danger was imminent. Wallace residents moved their valuables into storage warehouses along the eastern neighborhoods, away from the western side of town nearest the fires. But they would soon realize that no area was safe. Flaming pieces of timber and bark started falling upon the town. With so much smoke and ash floating around, the air quality was so abysmal, it became hard to breathe. Further down the mountain range, the Buffalo soldiers were still trying to contain the fire near Avery, Montana. Their last-ditch efforts continued late into the night and through the morning of August 20th. On the afternoon of the 20th, a wind came roaring over the Rockies from the desert to the southwest. This huge gust was a phenomenon known as a palouse. A palouse brings the hot, dry desert air up toward the damp, colder air of the Rockies. The sharp contrast between the two air temperatures produces forceful wind that sweeps through the mountain range. With an initial wind speed of 20 miles per hour, the Palouse packed enough strength to worry the firefighters. The wind picked up throughout the day as it tore through the mountains and accelerated through the ridges and valleys. The gale blasted over a grouping of smaller fires nestled in a stand of pine trees that the Forest Service had overlooked. Fed by the blast of cool oxygen, these smaller fires suddenly erupted into a single enormous swirl of flame. The heat of this blaze pushed the gusts of wind skyward, launching burning branches and pines across the landscape. As the wind whooshed upwards, the fire followed along, erupting in pillars. 
The fire was spreading exponentially as flames and debris were catapulted across the mountainside. By 3 p.m., smoke completely blotted out the sun over the region. It was a sign that confirmed the rangers' fears. The fires had, at last, joined together. An inferno of this size, nestled in the mountains and fanned by the wind, was an ecological disaster that could feed on its own destruction. The winds had brought the fires together, and the years of uncleared underbrush provided it with all the fuel it needed. Powered by both wind and fuel, the fire raced across the land at speeds of up to 60 miles per hour. Ranger Harry Kaufman was fearful of what the night would bring. He said, if this wind don't let up, there is no telling where this fire will go or what it will do. The mountainous area in the fire's path only made the wind more destructive. As a fire moves uphill, the heat of the flames warms the underbrush ahead of the blaze, causing it to ignite faster. At a slope with a 20% gradient, a fire moves four times faster than over flatland. The big burn also consumed immense amounts of oxygen as it tore up the forest, moving enough air to create tornadoes of flame. These rare phenomena are called fire whirls. These whirling columns of flame occur when superheated air rises from the fire and forms a chimney, pulling hot air even higher. Within this vortex, the fire spins rapidly and shoots flames into the air with terrifying power. These 2,000-degree Fahrenheit tornadoes possess enough strength to pull trees up from the ground and lift vehicles into the air. In an area with high trees and higher elevations, fire whirls are especially dangerous. They can climb high among the trees and hurl flaming debris in all directions. Back in Wallace, Idaho, by mid-afternoon on August 20th, it became so dark that the town lit its street lamps. Preparations for an emergency were underway, with medical workers amassing materials and railways gearing up for a mass evacuation. But the approaching flames were still not a cause of concern to everyone. Eight-year-old Henry Day and his friends saw the fire as a source of fun. He said, we raced around and gathered the burning debris from the forest fire and built a big bonfire in the alley. To us, it was great fun, kind of a game. Unfortunately, Henry was too young to realize the real game was one of life and death. Around 4 p.m. on the 20th, people in Wallace heard what they described as an immense roar coming from the burning forests. As evening approached, the winds reached hurricane force speeds of nearly 70 miles per hour. The peaks and valleys of the Rocky Mountains served as an airway that forced an increase in wind pressure and velocity. As the gusts drove flames up the trees, the superheated trunks burst open all the way to the top. One witness said the exploding trees looked like Roman candles. All around the mountain range, the flames flew from ridge to ridge on the wind, moving just as fast as the 70-mile-per-hour gusts. These gales carried the wildfire across half-mile-wide canyons and sent large pieces of burning material, called firebrands, flying miles ahead. Stationed on their ridge, Pulaski and his team valiantly kept up their efforts to subdue the fire, even in the midst of total chaos. 
he saw the wind pull men clear out of the saddles of their horses. The encroaching smoke eliminated visibility and made breathing nearly impossible. By the late afternoon, Pulaski knew fighting the fire was useless. His team's only option now was a retreat back to Wallace. But Pulaski was only able to find 48 of the 150 men he had on the mountain. Some 30 miles from Wallace, near the St. Joe River, another crew led by forest ranger Joseph Halm started to come to the same conclusions. Birds fell silent from the smoke, and animals moved in close to their encampment. Suddenly, a group of men came running out of the forest with terror etched across their faces. One man shouted, She's coming! The whole country's afire! Grab your stuff, ranger, and let's get out of here! Even if Pulaski and his team made it back to Wallace, they would hardly find the refuge they desperately needed. Wallace now lay in the same path of danger as the firefighters on the front line, and this knowledge spurred them to action. People fled town any way they could. Little Henry Day and his family ran for Markwell's Ranch on the site of modern-day Silverton. Later, Henry said, when I left home, I never expected to see it again. I had to leave my toys behind. I might have shed a tear for those marbles. Meanwhile, Pulaski and his men desperately ran towards Wallace as flaming projectiles hurtled around them and ash coated their throats and lungs. With the fire bearing down on them faster than their feet could take them, Pulaski realized Wallace was too far to reach in time. Pulaski and his men now found themselves trapped on the mountain. Miles away, Joseph Holmes' team scrambled for cover in the shelter of the St. Joe River. Near Avery, Idaho, the Buffalo soldiers prepared to give all they had to save the town. With the inferno fully out of control, the firefighters in the path of the Big Burn had a new mission, survive. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll follow the fire as it tears its way across the Rockies and the impact of the big burn on future environmental policy in America. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Mick Jacobs, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. <laughs> <laughs>